Uh, friends, let's pray. Our Father, we all probably know the greatest carpenter who ever lived. Our prayer is that we might know him better each day and therefore be a better assistant of his in the coming days. In Jesus' name, amen. Our friends, as we continue to look through the book of Zechariah, uh, where today we'll be looking at what some would say is the briefest vision of them all. Yes, you could say, I, I got the easy one. Uh, it's just four verses, uh, so relax, it shouldn't be too heady. We're we looking at verses 18 to 21 of chapter 1. So let's have a look at this vision. There are just two things in it, uh, or I should say the clash of two things in it. And the first is this, it is the four horns. Yes, four horns. And to help us to better understand this clash of two things, uh, there are also two people having a conversation about them. Uh, one of these people is obviously Zechariah himself, and the other one is an angel. In verse 18, as Paul read to us, we are told, Then I looked up, this is obviously Zechariah talking, and there before me were four horns. One of the two things he sees is these four horns. Uh, verse 19, I asked the angel who was speaking to me, what are these? I guess if I had a vision like this, uh, and our Lord has revealed quite a few things to me through visions involving birds, I would want to know what it all means. Uh, what about you? I'm sure we all, will all want to know. And so does Zechariah. He wants to know what it all means. So let's have a look at what the angel now says to him. Uh, we pick things up in the rest of verse 19. He, that is, the angel answered me, these are the horns that scattered Judah, Israel and Jerusalem. So these horns obviously represent something and something that Zechariah probably knew about. It's not too hard to understand what these four horns are about. Uh, horns are weapons uh, that aggressive, powerful animals use to attack their prey. And there are four of them, a popular number that represents the world. And in this case for Zechariah, it would have represented the world in that all the nations have acted like this toward Israel. They behave like animals, goring, tearing, terrorising her and scattering her people far away. Yes, these four horns represent the aggressive, powerful way that all the nations have treated God's people. And I don't think it's just one attack that is on view here, but a whole story of brutalisation summarised as a scattering of, and we're told in verse 19, Judah, Israel, in Jerusalem. That's right, it's a scattering of God's people. It all began in the second half of the 8th century, as Dan told us all about this, with the attacks of Assyria on the northern Israelite kingdom climaxing in the fall of Samaria in 722 BC. It continued in the late 7th century and early 6th centuries with attacks by the Babylonians on the southern Israelite kingdom culminating in the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in 587 BC. And the people in Jeru of Jerusalem 
in Zechariah's day would have felt utterly powerless to call the nations to account for how they have been treated. Yes, it certainly needs to be said they were expelled from Israel by God because of their ongoing disobedience to his word. But the nations that hammered them went way too far in what they did to them. Way too far. As I said last week, the Jewish nation was almost decimated. And it continues to be to this very day, literally, what's been happening there. And so God is very angry with these four horns. His people were meant to be disciplined, not destroyed like this. Yes, some of God's people had now returned to Israel. This 70 year of exile is up, but many of God's people were still scattered and were still suffering. Actually, Nehemiah, many years later, wrote about how God's people felt at the time. He writes way down the track after the event. Uh, and in summary, he says, We are in great distress. Nehemiah 9.37 we are in great distress. So the question that would have continually gnawed at the minds of God's people back then and no doubt to us today is, if God is king, how can the world remain so powerful and so smug? I'll repeat that. If God is king, how can the world remain so powerful and so smug? Yes, if God is our king, why doesn't he call the world, these nations, to account for what they've done? And I think this sort of thinking is specifically addressed in this vision. Uh, if the first part of this vision, which we looked at last week, details that the Lord knows what's going on, this second vision, or second part of the vision, details how the Lord generally acts. Well, God does act, he does. But his answer is a little puzzling at first, as it doesn't seem a very encouraging response. Now please have a look at the next two verses, verses 20 and 21. Then the Lord showed me, that is Zechariah, four craftsmen. I asked, what are these coming to do? And he answered, uh, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could raise their head. And I'm thinking, yep, I've got that bit. <laughs> but the craftsmen have come to terrify them and throw down these horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter its people. And I say that this isn't, at first, an encouraging response because I was kind of hoping that the Lord would have sent four bigger horns... <laughs> to smash these horns. Maybe you were too. But he says, I'm sending four craftsmen. Yes, craftsmen. We might say today, tradesmen. In a sense, it's quite a humble term. It does not refer to bigger horns. That's what I would do. <laughs> no, it doesn't refer to more powerful rulers or more powerful military leaders or even scholars but rather those who work with their hands in a skillful manner 
craftsmen, tradesmen. Uh, the same Hebraic term, or Hebrew term, that is translated craftsmen is also used for the weavers, the engravers and carpenters who worked on the tabernacle in the days of Moses and on the temple in the time of Solomon. It's used of the workmen in the repairs of the temple in the days of Josiah and of Ezra. Yes, also some have said that these must be blacksmiths to terrify the horns and smash them to the ground. You know, strong, strongly built man with huge hammers, big anvils and fiery forges. It seems more likely that they are just, yes, just, craftsmen. Or as some have said, including some translations also, carpenters. At the heart of this vision, therefore, is this clash between the great powers of the world and the relative weakness of those God has called. Yes, this clash of strength for horns and weakness for craftsmen. And the task of these four craftsmen is to overthrow the power of the nations. Yes, there's an emerging a, a, a great paradox, puzzle. It seems that God uses what is weak and perhaps relatively unimportant to over, overthrow what the world sees as powerful and very significant. Yes, we see here the ways of the kingdom, God's kingdom, clashing with the way of the world. One has powerful, aggressive horns. The other, just craftsmen. But how are the craftsmen going to win this clash? Like how? Well, in a sense, they are just the instruments. It's obviously not by their might and their power that the nations of the world will be judged. No. They will do it, but it's someone working through them that will help them. And who is that one? That one is the Lord himself. Do you remember what came just before this vision and how uh, the first vision ended? I keep saying these eight visions are so connected uh, that some say it's just one vision. In verse 16, last week we are told... Therefore, this is what the Lord says, I will return to Jerusalem with mercy and there my house will be rebuilt and the measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem. Notice the words, I will return. My house will be rebuilt. Yes, craftsmen will be used, but their ability will come from the one who owns the house, the one who has returned. I will return. My house will be rebuilt. And so the mention of craftsmen does make sense. One needs craftsmen to rebuild the temple. But there's something more going on than just this. We are told that the nations are going to be terrified and thrown down by these craftsmen. <laughs> they haven't just come to rebuild the temple. Like one isn't terrified and thrown down by just watching people rebuild stuff, are they? <laughs> and so these craftsmen are not as weak 
and ordinary as they appear to be. On the contrary, they are chosen instruments by the Lord to manifest his rule to the world and to therefore judge the world for what they have done. Just think about it as to who God sometimes uses to bring about his judgment on the world. Sometimes, Howard, (laughs) where are you? (laughs) Sometimes, Howard, he simply uses the prayers of someone. Like, has he in the past ever used a craftsman or a carpenter? And I don't mean Jesus at this point. (laughs) Has he? Yes, has he ever in the past used a craftsman? a carpenter to deliver his rule, his judgment on the world? Yes, he has. That is what he is like. And no doubt to at least make sure that all the praise goes to him rather than to the craftsman. Sadly, Hollywood usually majors on that sort of stuff these days. (laughs) And we read about who he once chose in our second reading today from Hebrews 11. God chose Noah. Noah, some say, a a marine carpenter or craftsman, performed a similar role in his day. We're told in Hebrews 11.7. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen in holy fear, built an ark. Ever built an ark? (laughs) To save his family. By faith he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. And Noah was not just a boat builder. He was also a preacher, 2 Peter 2.5. But it is his simple act of building the ark that is mentioned here. It was by doing that that he condemned the world remembering how bad the world had then become. God was fed up with it. He was grieved by it. And you can read all about it in Genesis 6. In one of the saddest verses in the Holy Scriptures, Genesis 6, 6. But our world today is so much better, isn't it? Is it? Yes, through Noah, God delivered his judgment to the world, but at the same time offered his salvation. If only one would get into the ark before the flood came. And the point is this. Noah participated in that judgment by his simple act of faith in building the ark. He put the world on notice, so to speak with God working through him. And we find in the New Testament the same thing, let alone in the life and death of Jesus, a carpenter himself. Yes, there is a building project still going on and it still concerns God's temple. That is, God's people. And it's still built on human weakness rather than worldly power. 
and it's still built on what the world would say is a pretty ordinary message and proclaimed by pretty ordinary people, even some electricians. I think 1 Corinthians 1.18 sums it all up and is so relevant at this point. For the message of the cross, some would say a cross that held up just a carpenter, is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the what? The power of God. Friends, God is the judge of all people. And he uses very ordinary people like you and me. Yes, he uses, what the wor- uh, he uses people, what the world, the nations might think are pretty weak and humble. He even uses people from NHA. <laughs> and the message, the gospel that we now show and now speak might seem very foolish to some, but it is, as we're told here, the power of God to those who are being saved. The danger back then for Zechariah and his contemporaries was that they might underestimate the significance of the work God had called them to do. In their case, it was the rebuilding of the temple. There seemed to be so many bigger, more urgent matters in the world that needed attention, including rebuilding their own homes. I might add, especially when interest rates keep going up and fuel prices keep going up, Yes, we face similar pressures today. Friends, you and I, we are supposed to be on about building God's temple. That is, his church. And not even the gates of Hades, we're told, will be able to overcome it. Matthew 16, 18. And we are supposed to do so in his strength, not by our might, not by our power, but in his strength, by his spirit, Zechariah 4.6. But how do we, his fellow workers, his craftsmen, his craftswomen, go about such building? It's by how we show the gospel and also speak the gospel. That's how we build. The gospel might seem weak and pointless to some, you, I, we NHA might also seem weak and pointless to some, but we must not allow the pressures of 21st century living to keep us from this task. Imagine for a second if Noah never got around to building the ark because of the pressures on him each day. Yes, imagine that. Imagine for a second if Jesus never got to the cross because of the pressures he faced and he certainly faced a lot. Yes, imagine that. 
but it is the preaching and living of the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit that is the God-ordained means by which, there's three things here, the powers of darkness are directly confronted. It is the preaching and living of the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit that is the God-ordained means by which the church, his church, is built. And it's the preaching and living of the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit that is the God-ordained means by which his kingdom advances in this world. It's his mission and his church that he founded. Whatever else we do, we must engage in and support this crucially important gospel work, including also the generous and sacrificial support of a building fund in the case of NHA. Friends, I, I think in short, and as Barry Webb, who has written a wonderful commentary on Zechariah, has said, quote, this is what he said, uh, we cannot pray your kingdom come without at the same time being committed to keeping the craft, the trade of gospel ministry at the very centre of our life and vision, both as individuals and as the church. May God make us good carpenters in his building project. End of quote. And all of God's people would surely say to that, Amen. Amen. Thank you, Bob.